0: Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we have um, honored you by telling you our hearts, sharing with you how much we love you and how much we worship you. And now, Father, once again, we would ask that you would honor us by allowing us to open your word and to allow that word to speak into our lives. Father, I just pray that in these next moments that you would just just move among us by your spirit and that you would allow the word of God to take root deep within us and that we would know and understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, I would also just lift up right now uh, Joy Boydston, who yesterday had an emergency appendectomy and pray, Father, that you would continue to give her strength and rest. Um, it's difficult. Gary's in India. and I pray, Lord, that you would just be the comforter that she needs right now. And Father, for others in our congregation that are struggling, whether it be uh, in the body or the soul or the heart, I just pray that you would lift them up. And may this word today uh, lift up our hearts. And may we open our eyes and see Jesus. Uh, to that end, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, the uh, title of my message is something a little bit uh, different. The title is I quit. Now, I was told now with all apologies to Winston Churchill and other famous people who have said you're never supposed to quit. Um, I grew up that way, too, where my father especially was the kind of guy that, uh, you know, he's a Navy guy in World War Two. And and he said, you know, to say uh, you know, to say I can't means I won't, you know. And, uh, and he was just this guy you always you never give up, you never quit. And so it's uh, odd and a little bit weird that I would entitle this message about what is a Christian, I quit. Many of you are familiar with uh, the author Anne Rice. How many uh, know the author Anne Rice? Okay, great. Um, she's written over 30 books, uh, and she's most famous for writing uh, pre-1998, uh, these steamy, gothic, decidedly un-Christian novels, such as Interview with a Vampire and Vampire Diaries. In fact, uh, she's considered to be the precursor to the Twilight series and this, uh, morbid fascination we have in the last five or six years with vampires. That's Anne Rice, and she's very famous for that. Uh, she, uh, when she was 18 years old, uh, she describes that she left the church that she grew up in. She grew up in a Catholic church, and she left the church, and she said, I left the church, and these are her words, uh, violently and permanently. Uh, she pursued her writing career and became wildly successful. She's, she's a brilliant woman, uh, wealthy beyond imagination, Uh, If she were in here, she'd be the smartest person in the room. You know, she's that kind of person. Uh, Anne Rice has sold over 90 million books. Then in her late 50s, in 1998, she was converted back to her Christian roots. And she committed all of her writing talents to the Lord, including a trilogy about Jesus' life. Anybody read any of her books about Jesus' life? Okay, a few of you. And also, uh, she has written this book, Called Out of Darkness. And it's her testimony of how she came back to her uh, faith in Christ Jesus. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. And uh, she wrote this book in 2008. I would just like to read for you a couple of paragraphs uh, from her book. And she's describing her conversion to Christ. And uh, she had left it, remember, uh, when she was 18 years old, came back in 1998, and then she's writing this book in 2008. In the moment of surrender, she writes, I let go of all the theological or social questions which had kept me from him for countless years. I simply let them go. There was the sense, profound and wordless, that if he knew everything, I did not have to know everything. And that in seeking to know everything, I'd been all of my life missing the entire point. No social paradox, no historic disaster, no hideous record of injustice or misery should keep me from him. No question of scriptural integrity, no torment over the fate of this or that atheist or gay friend, No worry for those condemned and ostracized by my church or any other church should stand between me and him. The reason? It was magnificently simple. He knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world. All this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy, were not our justice or our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. I didn't have to know how he was going to save the unlettered and the unbaptized. Or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who had never spoken his name. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption. Or how my hard-working secular humanist friends Could or would receive the power of his saving grace. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony or died in pain. He knew. And it was his knowing that overwhelmed me. His knowing that became completely real to me. His knowing that became the warp and the woof of the universe which he had made. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, that is brilliant. I mean, so often we worry about, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about the other? And Anne Rice says, you know what? God is big enough to handle all of those questions. We don't have to worry about those because he already has the answers. I think it was just an awesome testimony of how she came back to Christ. So we've all had these moments, like when she was 18 years old. I remember when I was 18 years old uh, in a freshman biology class and the teacher, and all of us have those freshman biology class stories, right? You know, oh no, you know, for the first time my eyes were opened up to the real world, you know, and, and who could ever believe in a God because of biology and all of those things, and we have all had those moments when, oh no, a friend of mine said that how can you believe the Bible, it was just written by a bunch of men, and it's not inspired, and it's just all contradicted, and we hear all these things, and some of us actually believe those things. And we believed them for a long time, like Ann Rice. We believed our biology professor more than we believed our Sunday school teacher in the fourth grade. We believed that uh, that, that that person that was in front of us, uh, a, a figure of of honor, a figure of importance, a figure, a teacher or a professor, that somehow, some way, they knew more about life than we did, and we embraced that. And for some of us. It's taken a long time to come back. And, and let me say this, just, I'm not, and I don't know who's here in that category, but for some of you today, you need to take another look, just like Anne Rice did. I mean, Anne Rice is smarter than your freshman biology teacher, believe me. You know. <laughs> she, she's smarter than, than, than a lot of people that told you, well, the Bible's just full of contradictions. You know, every person that's ever said that to me, they made a huge mistake. Because what I would do is I'd say, here, here's my Bible, show me. Well, yeah, but I don't know. But yeah, well, Ben told me, you know, you know, Jimmy told me, you know, they don't know, you know, but but I want. And, and again, like I said last week, anything that gets you to take your Bible, blow the dust off it and look at it. You're good to go. So so here we go with uh, this. This We've all had these times of faith when we say, I just don't know. And um, so and back to and So time goes by uh, 12 years later in July 2010. Uh, on her Facebook account to many, many people, um, uh, she said this. She said, I quit. I quit. And I'll read the exact quote. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong, listen to this, to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. i failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. And Rice declares, I still love Jesus. I still give my heart to him every single day. But the Christians... And the Christian church, and Christianity, she called them, and these are amazing words, quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious. Now only Anne Rice could come up with a word like that. You know, I had to, I had to practice it 20 times so I wouldn't goof up when I read it, when I read the quote. Disputatious. You know, we hear that word and say, oh yeah, yeah. I remember when I was a kid in the church and there was this church split over the version of the Bible or this, this church split over what kind of music we are going to sing. And I remember, yeah, disputatious. I know exactly what that means. You see, Anne Rice is basically saying, what about, what about this call to love people the way that Jesus loved people? I don't see it. I don't see it. I'm, I, I haven't been around it in my church context and among my church friends. Where is it? Now, I'm going to follow Jesus, she said, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of that. Now, how viscerally, how, how, how do you react to that? I mean, what does that do inside of you? Some of us have felt that way. Some of you. Feel that way right now. In fact, some of you are going in your own mind. Amen. And you didn't even grow up in a Baptist church. You just know that some I should say something like, you know, yes, I, I believe that. That's me. In fact, Anne Rice says later that um, she now finds herself in another group she didn't sign up for. And that group is the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of emails and phone calls that she's received from people just like her, that they love Jesus. They love the Lord. But this Christian thing just doesn't work. This Christianity thing just doesn't work. So Rice continues, and she adds this, this comment. Following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity. Wow. And always will be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. Then in another interview, she says, My commitment to Christ remains at the heart and center of my life. Transformation in him is radical and ongoing. I feel now that I am called to be an outsider for him to step away from the words Christian and Christianity. It is something that my conscience demands of me. In other words, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus. But that Christian thing, that thing where we have gone to war in the name of Jesus, that thing where we have said slavery's okay in the name of Jesus, that thing, I don't want any part of it. Now, many of us have had that experience with a son or a daughter or a friend. That experience went at, uh, oh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years of age. You're, I remember our son came to us when he was about 18. He said, you know, I'm not so sure about this thing. I said, what do you mean, son? He said, um, you know, I still, I, still, I still love Jesus. I still believe in God. But this church thing, now what he had witnessed is kind of some things that I had gone through. And at that time in his life, he was putting the blame on the church instead of on me. Since then, he's got a better perspective. The the church has its flaws. We all churches do. But the church wasn't at fault in that regard. I was. I was the one that was gambling. So anyway, but, but he saw this. Is, he said, I, I don't want to go to church. He went to a Christian college, but he didn't go to church. And he said, I just don't want any part of that. And thank God he came back. And that's, but this idea of, 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 of hypocrisy, hypocrisy, the Greek word means to wear a mask, this being hate filled. And when we're supposed to be loving uh, that's not what I want. That's not what I signed up for. I don't want any part of that. Uh, there's a, a young man that I had in confirmation class when we first moved here to, uh, to Arizona back in 2000, and uh, he still lives here in Arizona. He's a wonderful kid, but now he's a young man, uh, as you would expect, uh, in his mid 20s, and uh, and he's told me recently that uh, uh, he's checked out of Christianity. He calls himself a non-political secularist agnostic. Yeah, I think he said one too many philosophy classes in my personal opinion, but a non-political secularist agnostic. And I said, where did you come up with that? He said, well, and he, and he told me, I said, well, what, what's behind all that? He said, he said, all, all that stuff that we were taught when we were little about loving each other and loving in the church and loving each other in the world. He said, I don't see it. I don't see it. Wow. I, I'm not often speechless. I was speechless. Others of you might say, well, in the fourth grade, I used to sing Jesus loves me. This I know. But uh, you know what? I, I don't know that. Any, I don't know that anymore. You know, I I'm going through this financial crisis. Uh, my marriage is dying. My kids are doing all the wrong thing. I, I don't know if I believe that anymore. This Jesus loves me. This I know. Some of you are saying, yeah, I, I got caught up in that evolution creation kind of argument uh, on both sides uh, the evolutionists are saying, well, look at the ha ha, you know, and the creationists are saying, oh, we don't in spite of the evidence, we don't believe in you. And and they're all and, and where's the love in that? And people say, well, I just check out. I don't, I don't want to give up Jesus, but this Christian thing, I, I don't know if I want any part of that. Now, now we talked last week about, about this idea of being a Christian. It's only recorded three times in the New Testament. And each time that it's recorded in the New Testament, it's used as um, somebody from the outside looking in. In other words, like Nero looking at this group of Christ followers and calling them Christians. And so the word Christian didn't have any historical roots in the first century. Uh, now, later it became a kind of common. And, and and they started warming up to the idea that they were Christians and they weren't just disciples or followers of the way or Christ followers. And they warmed up. The, it's kind of like um, a word that's derogatory later became acceptable, uh, like geek. You know, it used to be geek was a really bad word. Now you put it on the side of a car and you make one hundred thousand dollars by fixing my television because I have no idea how to fix it. So, you know, the geek squad. So so, so that's what happened with Christian. It kind of it kind of went from this bad. uh, Ooh, you know, that group, you know, Christian to okay, we're Christians and we kind of accepted it. And and that became part of us. But but uh, everything has changed. Uh, that word was not a common word in the New Testament at all, and it didn't mean what we think it meant, because it can mean anything you want it to mean. Some of you think that Christian means American. No. Some of you think Christian means believing in God. No. Some of you think Christian means being Republican. Way no. <laughs> or Democrat. Way no. You know, some of you think Christian means that you help a little lady across the street. Nice act, but no. And and so everybody has a different definition of what Christian means. But that word disciple, now that's hard and that's difficult. And that sounds like, I don't know if I can do that. And to follow someone else and to ask someone else what they think I should do, and then to do that, that's what it means to be disciple. I just don't know about that. I mean, nations have gone to war over this name Christian. Civil rights happened on both sides of the church. People are saying, it's okay to have slavery. The other side said, no, it's an abomination to God to have slavery. And everybody was pointing their fingers at everybody else. And these were Christians. And this was in the church. And it was shameful in our history of our church. Robert E. Lee. I'm just finishing a book. Uh, Robert E. Lee. Um, just a couple of years after the Civil War was over, uh, uh, on Palm Sunday, April 9th, 1965, it finally ended and at Appomattox Court and Grant and Lee were there. And so now the South is trying to rebuild and they're licking their wounds and it's tough and it's hard. But many of them, like Robert E. Lee, was a really strong believer and and he had had been convinced that slavery was okay. but he had been changing his mind and doing some reading and stuff like that. And so one day, uh, two years after the revolution or the uh, Civil War, um, he was in church on a Sunday morning at a large Presbyterian church in Virginia. And all his friends were there, family, you know, not all, of course, all white faces, of course. And it was just a wonderful, you know, preparation for worship. And the the church was full and there was no seats available. And just after the liturgy started, um, a a black man, a former slave, came wandering into the church. And there's a seat over here, but it was obvious by the movement of the people there, the way they scooted over. (laughs) You're not sitting here, pal you're not sitting here. The war may be over, but it's still going on inside of here, you know. And so he's looking for a seat. He couldn't find a seat to sit, so finally he went up in the front of the church and he sat down right next to the front pew, right on the floor. Now, that may be okay in an AME church or a Southern Baptist church, but those Presbyterians, you know, Presbyterians and the Episcopalians, they were the wealthy groups, right? Uh, you know, that was not okay. And the fact is, that's even worse than that is the guy's black. So, The pastor doesn't know what he's doing. The deacons don't know what to do. There's tittering and whispering and all of this going on. And so Robert E. Lee gets away out of his family pew. And he goes up and he walks up next to this guy. And people are thinking, okay, the general is going to take care of this. And he sits down right on the floor next to him. And the worship goes on. And it was awesome. But here's here's the deal. Um, After church, the church wasn't so mad at the black guy. They were furious at Lee. Furious. Why? Because it's still, I am a Christian, and this is what I believe it means to be a Christian, and you abused my right. And Robert E. Lee was becoming a disciple. Disciple, that terrible and terrifying word. That word, if you understand it, if you embrace it, if you live it, it is scary. And listen, folks, it will rock your world. Your whole experience as a follower of Jesus will be changed. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, an adherent of the faith. A disciple is one who says, now, Jesus, in this situation in my marriage or in my job or in this difficult situation that I'm negotiating at work in that situation, how what would Christ do in that situation? What would Christ in me, the hope of glory How should I respond to that? Because Christ is it. That's what a disciple says. And another part of a disciple is even before the disciple gets finished asking the question and before Jesus can even answer the question, the disciple stances this. Yes. Whatever you say, it's yeah. The answer is yes. That's a disciple. That's a completely different animal than a Christian. Because a Christian can be anything you want it to be. A Christian can be somebody that belongs to A.A. A Christian can be somebody that belongs to their civic club. A Christian can be anybody that you want it to be. But a disciple, that is something completely different. Now, I just want to take a couple of minutes side trip. And this came out of uh, last Sunday after second service. Uh, somebody was talking to me and we were kind of joking. And he said, you know, this uh, this this preaching about this difference between Christianity and and disciple. And the fact that a disciple is supposed to love the way that Jesus loved us. Now that's how the real sign of whether or not you're a disciple. He said that that sounds kinda that sounds kind of girly man. You know, that lovey, touchy-feely thing, you know, and that sounds kind of girly man. You know, at that time was the Olympics were just over and football season's almost here, we're all men are, you know, we're on steroids and we're getting all pumped. He's kinda kinda girly man. So so for those who might have thought that last week, I wanted to speak to you for a moment because guys a lot of times are I would say this, love your enemy and love other people the way Jesus loved you is not is kind of effeminate. And it's not re- real in the marketplace or in the sports court or in the real world, because the real world is about winning in competition. Not love, let me say this, and I'll put this up on the screen. If you want to understand what Jesus meant by what he said, look at what he did. So if you understand whether or not Jesus' words love each other, are effeminate, and they don't really have any bite to them, and it takes away competition. If you, if you want to, don't look at what he said as much as what he did. So, let's talk about that. Jesus was a 30-something single adult. A man. Really, in all accounts, a man's man. I mean, this guy hung out with fishermen, and how more manly can that get? Right? You know? We all know that. And the guy uh, demanded respect. When he was 12 years old, he went in and rabbis were in awe of him. Uh, he, he was a leader. Now, this 30-something-year-old man marched into Jerusalem knowing he was going to be arrested, knowing he was going to be brutally beaten, and knowing he was going to be crucified and he still walked into Jerusalem. Now, guys, those of you who are manly men, how many of you would do that? Right? How many of you, oh, yeah, you're a manly man, you're good on the, on the softball field. But how many of you guys would do that? See, Jesus was a guy who grew up seeing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. He didn't read about it. He smelled it. His mother covered his eyes when they saw it. What every Roman citizen feared, he saw and he knew that was his destiny. He had plenty of opportunities to run away. He had plenty of opportunities to say, you know what? Let's defend ourselves. Let's pull our swords. Let's defend ourselves. He had plenty of opportunity to say, you know, that love thing I was talking about, it's not working. <laughs> so let's do something else. Let's go. Let's do what Judas wanted to do. Pull our swords and slaughter these Romans because look what they have done to us. No, he had every chance to, do that. but instead he walked into the jaws of death. So do not discount what Jesus said. Look at what he did. So that's just for the guys. Girls, I hope you're still on board with us. Okay, so back to that last night when Jesus was together with his disciples. The upper room, they'd shared a meal, communion. Judas had already been moved away because he was called out. And now Jesus said, okay, guys, gather in. In spite of Peter, you saw what we talked about last week. Guys, gather in. What I'm going to tell you now, you know, all the things you've seen and done, they're all good and they're part of this thing that we call the kingdom. The healing, casting out demons, all these things are awesome and they're amazing. But what I want to tell you now is more important than anything else. And disciples, if you, if you remember one thing that I'm going to tell you, it's got to be this. It's got to be this. It can't be anything else. It's got to be this one thing. And then he said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, So you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Guys, he said, this is how they're going to know whether you're a follower of mine. This is how they're going to know whether or not you truly love God by how you love each other and how you love the lost. Love one another. The church I grew up in was a small community church, like most churches. I think we forget sometimes when we see the cornerstones in the Christian uh, Chandler Christian churches and like those that still today, to this day, 90% of all churches are 150 people or less. And most of us grew up in churches under 150 people, a small group. We knew everybody and it was just kind of that's the way we grew up. Well, the church I grew up in, we had a deacon. His name was E. Warden Conway. Now, anybody that uh, tells you when you say uh, meet them and they tell you that their first name is E, an initial, they're already taking themselves too seriously. And uh, E. Worden Conway, if you were to, you know, my name's E. Worden Conway. Well, what should I call you? Should I call you E? I mean, you know, no. Uh, so, E. Worden Conway was a, a lawyer. Uh, again, in our church, because Ann Rice wasn't in our church, he was the smartest guy in the room. And uh, everybody kind of respected him because he was this. Lawyer, you know, and it was awesome. Sorry, Chad, if you're out there. And, uh, and, and, so, and, and so the smartest guy in the room, and, and the guy was an amazing teacher of the Bible. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and he loved God. He prayed, and when he prayed, it was eloquent, and you didn't know what he was doing saying, because there's lots of these and thous. The guy was amazing. But let me tell you something. E. Warden Conway was a curmudgeon. He was a mean Unloving guy. I mean, the only words he ever spoke to me as a child growing up in the church was, Cross, don't do that. Cross, you better not do that or I'll tell your dad. Those are the the the, the wonderful, impactful words that I heard from Mr. E. Warden Conway, considered the greatest Christian in our church. You know what John, the writer, would say? John, we've been studying John, right? You know what John would say? He said, no, huh? E. Worden might be a very fine Christian by his own definition, but he's not behaving like a disciple. Jesus said, guys, you got to get this right. It's about love. If somebody says, I know all things about the Bible and they don't love, you got to get rid of them. You've got to say, this is not for me. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 13, a, 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 a clanging symbol is like people who say, look at me, look at me. I love God. I love God, but there's no love. They're a clanging symbol." Love one another. So, I want to get back to another text today. We looked at the John, uh, Gospel of John text. I want to look at another text today. So, in First John. So, 55 years after Jesus said these words to John and the disciples. John went out and wrote it down, right? Um, and John gave us the Gospel of... John, very good. Okay, you guys, I just want to make sure you're not asleep. Okay. So God, and John was by now an old man. Fifty-five years later, Jesus had been gone for about fifty plus years. John had seen Jerusalem sacked. I mean, Jerusalem was wiped out in A.D. seventy, right? He had seen that. In fact, one of the this is sometime I'll preach on this. One of the reasons that we know the New Testament is is real and authentic is because there's no word in all of the New Testament, about the destruction of Jerusalem. That was such a major event in the life of the church in Judaism. It would have been all over the pages. But do you know why it was not in the Bible? Because they wrote it before AD 70. <laughs> and everybody else wanted to say, nah, you know." But anyway, that's a whole other sermon series. So, so here we go. Uh, uh, 55 years later, uh, John has seen Jerusalem sacked. He's seen thousands of Christians executed. He's an old man now. Peter... Yeah, you're right. That Peter, the, the great Peter, the great, the guy who was head of the church and one of the guys at Rome, uh, excuse me, at Jerusalem. Uh, he had seen Peter taken to Rome and crucified upside down. He had lived through the news of the apostle Paul taken to Rome and beheaded outside the city. He was one of the only ones left of the disciples, all the disciples were either murdered, dispersed or disappeared. Nobody had heard from him. He lived to be an old man. God preserved his life for some reason. I think God preserved his life so that he could write his last book, which was Revelation. Very good. So you are awake. And and the people in the front row always know the answer to these questions. And so so all of this was happening. And um, he's one of the only ones left. He's an old man now. He has seen in his lifetime Tiberius, Caliglia, Nero. All the persecution, all the Christians, emperors have come and gone, all the bloodshed. He survived all of that. And now he sits down to write a letter or a document or a sermon. We don't know what his purpose was, but he actually wrote three of them. We call them letters. They are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? And uh, he sits down to write these, and you would think that the guy that said, The most important thing you can know is to love the way that God loves you. You think that's the most important thing. Uh, And then 55 years later, you'd think, oh, man, he must be jaded. He's seen all this bloodshed and this destruction. He's seen all the disciples completely wiped out. He's seen thousands upon tens of thousands, actually over 100,000 Christians in that 55 years. They're destroyed, many of them in the Olympic Arena where they were eaten by bears and dogs. I mean, this, he'd seen all this. You'd think by now he'd say, "You know that love thing I talked about? You know what Jesus said? Forget it. You know it's not working. Let's try a different method, because <laughs> this love thing is not." You think that's what he said, but this instead is what he said in First John chapter four, verses seven to eleven. Dear friends, let us love one another. And you guys say, John, are you still hanging on to that? John, haven't you seen enough life that life is really screwed up? Haven't you seen enough life where life is just terrible and people are, are, are not treated the way they should be and they're destroyed and they're wiped out and they're killed and all the good, you know, what, uh, you, you know bad things happen to good people, all the stuff that we kind of whine about today. And, uh, haven't you seen all this, John? John said, dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John, are you kidding me? After Nero and Tiberius and Calig- Caliglia, are you kidding me? you still hanging on to this love idea that somehow we're in the midst of all this stuff. And you can almost hear people asking, John, are you still hanging on to this thing? And you might ask John, well, John, how's that working out? He said, well, all the other disciples are dead, except for me. I mean, I guess that's not so good. Well, now, and John, how's the church doing? Well, actually, the church is growing, but they're all, all underground. <laughs> they're in all these Roman catacombs, and they're all hiding, you know. And how's this thing working? And John would say, well, you know what? I, in spite of all the evidence around us, I was there. I was just an 18-year-old kid when I was Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a disciple. I was just a kid. I was the one who was responsible to take Mary and make sure that she had a good end-of-life experience. And I was there. And John said, but here, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. What Jesus told us then is still the only thing that matters now. And that is the only thing that will transform you is the love of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that will transform others is others seeing the love of Jesus Christ by the way that you love them. Not the way that you have power over. Not the way that you are type A. Not the way that you lead and you make sure that everybody's all in order. But how you love one another. Love is it. You say, but yeah, but, but Dwayne, I, I know this preacher. And uh, man, he's not very loving. And he's pretty harsh. And not very nice. But man, can he preach? You know what John would say? I don't think so. Oh, he may be a great Christian of his own definition. He may be a great Bible scholar. Whoopee! You know, he may be all of that, but disciple? A true disciple? Well, I don't think so. Well, I know this, uh, this wonderful woman in our church, and she's a Bible scholar, and she knows the Word like no one else, and she loves the Bible, and she teaches it so beautifully, so eloquently. But man, she's kind of mean-spirited. She gossips, and Kind of spreads rumors. And you know what John would say? I don't think so. She may be a Christian of her own design. She may be a Christian because she really knows the Bible. By the way, Satan knows more of the Bible than you do. Okay, just, you know, just wanting to let you know. And she knows the Bible, but she doesn't love. And John would say, well, then she's not behaving like a disciple. Or that uh, teenager, one of our precious teenagers, uh, Oh, man, she comes to all of the events and she went to leadership retreat and she knows the Bible. She loves God and she's doing all that. But you should see some of those texts she sends. And you should see some of the rumors that she starts. Well, in that girl's mind, she might be a Christian. But a disciple, John, would say, I don't think so. It's because there's only one characteristic that really stands above all else. And it's to love others the way that God loved us. And so in that passage in First John, you're kind of asking, okay, so what's God like? And we ask that question, what's God like? And so we use the omni words, and we love omni words because. You know, they, we sound smart, you know, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. And so we talk about and, and then we talk about the Old Testament words because, again, we sound smart. He's powerful, majestic, holy, mighty. And that's all. And then we use our Hebrew words and songs we sing because we sound smart. Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh. You know, we don't know what any of them means, but we sing them because it sounds good. And and then John comes along and says, all that's true of God. All that's true of God. No question about that. But let, let's just back up a minute. You know, back the bus up a little bit. Behind all of that, big names and omnis and Hebrew and Greek and all that great stuff. Let's back it up, back it up, back it up. Behind all of that, you have the absolute essence, the heartbeat, the life, the flow of who God is, His essence. And it's this one thing. God loves you. He loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you on the cross. God loves you so much. He has done everything in his power to blockade the road to hell with the cross of Jesus Christ. God loves you. And then John would say this, and that's just the beginning. Because God loves you that much, he wants you to love others the same way. You get this right, we don't do World War II. You get this right, we don't do the Civil War. In fact, in spite of the fact that there are more than half the population aren't professing believers, you get this right. Things change and they change rapidly. So, John, are you really believing this still? I mean, Jerusalem has been flattened in A.D. 70. You know what happened to Peter, Paul, Matthew? Matthew was buried, burned at the stake. Are you still maintaining that God is love? And you know what what John said? I look at verse uh, uh, Nine. Uh, uh, this is how God showed his love among us. Sometimes when you read these verses, you read them too fast. That word, that little word among us, you know what that meant? Uh, John said, I was there. <laughs> I was there. You, you, know, you know who wrote that gospel of John? That was me. You know, I, I was there. Uh, Jesus did this among us. We saw what love looked like. Love looked like the cross. Love looked like washing feet. Love didn't look like drawing your sword and defending yourself. Love looked like all of these other things. John said, I was there. And probably the only one that could confirm that would be Mary if she's still alive. We don't know. Is it right, Mary? You took care of Mary these 55 years. Right? She said, I was there too. Yes. I saw him hanging on the cross. I was there. This outrageous act of love for me. I saw it. We need to realize that this is the answer. Sometimes we say, well, you know, there's a lot of things. That's true. But the very heartbeat, the essence of our faith is not how we behave or even what we believe as good as and important as those are. But it's how we love. Verse 11, it says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, that's a, a debtor's term in the Greek, and it indicates a debt of love. It talks about this kind of debt-debtor relationship. And we see this in other places in the Bible where we have this debt-debtor relationship with God because of His love and His redemption for us. We have this kind of uh, relationship that, well, because of that, you know, now we don't do it so that, you know, we keep God happy with us, but we are so overwhelmed with the debt that He canceled in our lives. We are so overwhelmed with the sin that He forgave in our lives. We are so overcome with this canceled debt that that it's just the way we respond back to him, this debt, debtor relationship. But God would say, you know what, I, I, I like I like it when you love me and when you honor me. Those are all good. But, you know, he said that's, that's not really what I'm after so much. Uh, that's good. But what I really want to see is this debt of love that you have from me. I want to see that debt of love extended to those around you, to those in your sphere of influence, those people that you're eyeball to eyeball with, um, your uh, coach. Uh, your CEO, your um, CEO, your teacher, your employee, your wife, your daughter, your grandfather, and all of these relationships. Uh, John would say, "What I want to see this debt that you that you feel you owe to God." God says, "I'm God. I don't I, you know I don't need anything. <laughs> I'm God. I want you, that debt you feel. I want you to give that to others. I want you to give that to others." I had a uh, Email a couple weeks ago from Arlene. Arlene was a girl in my youth group at Mount Miguel Covenant Church uh, in 1972. Now, when I got the email and she said she typed that in the email, it struck horror in my mind because that was 40 years ago when I was a youth pastor, and uh, and she told me that she had. And I knew this of her, but she wanted to tell me how she was doing. She's a grandmother now. How'd that happen? And uh, she's a mother and a grandmother. They all follow the Lord. And she said, I came out of a home where we never felt God's love ever under any circumstance. My father abused me sexually. I had all of that horrific stuff happen to me. But I came to Mount McGill Covenant Church, and I found people that loved me. And they loved me until I asked them why. Why? And then when I asked them why, they pointed me to Jesus. And then when I met Jesus, I was overwhelmed with love. And my life has never been the same yet again. That's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, but I have the the best doctrine in town. Good for you. You know, believe in the correct doctrine and you will be saved. No, (laughs) believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But I do the best good works. Well, good for you. You know, I'm sure there's, so did, so did Mother Teresa. You know, and there's a lot of good things. But how do you love? How do you love? You see, I, I want to be different than what Ann Rice experienced. I, I would like to be her friend, and I'm sure she has many friends like, you know, me. She's Again, she's, I don't know her. Uh, I asked her to come and be our guest today. No, I didn't really. But... Uh, she, her fee was like $20,000. But, uh, but this, this thing that she wrote has just, just bothered me. This quarreling, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group that she calls Christians. I want this to go away. I want this to be eradicated. I hope you do too. I, I want you to take this seriously. And I, as I take it seriously, what does it mean for me? What does it really mean for me to be a disciple? I'm tired of being a Christian. I can make that I can make that be anything I want it to be. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to follow Him. I want to I want to ask Him, God, in this situation, God, what should I do? And before I even get the words, what should I do? Out, the answer to His response to me is always the same. It's always yes. I'm your disciple, of course. (laughs) Anything you suggest, I'm going to do. Anything you say, I'm going to believe. Any place you want me to go, I'm going to go. Of course, I'm a disciple. Maybe in one sense, we all need to quit being Christians. Albert Camus said, he was a late, great French infidel, I would be a follower of Christ if it weren't for the leprous body he drags behind him. Camus kind of felt the way Anne Rice does. He meant Christians. Quarrelsome. Hostile and disputatious. Last week, I challenged you to live like a disciple for three months. See how it fits. See if it works for you. Um, Can you imagine what would happen if we all did that? Can you imagine what would happen in our marriages if we started um, loving our wives the way that God loved us? And by the way, that's a verse in the Bible. (laughs) Can you imagine what it would look like to start loving... Are our, our neighbors the way that Jesus loved them? Or that 10th grade boy going to school and starting to love other people the way that Jesus loves him and the impact on this world that could have? Don't settle for being a Christian. John would say for the last 2,000 years, Christianity, we, would, we gave up our leverage in society because we gave up God's voice and influence when we settled for anything less than love. When we settled for doctrine, when we settled for do it my way or you're not a Christian, when we settled for anything less than love, we gave up our voice in our world. We need to get our voice back. So I'd like you to think about that this week. Next week we're going to look at the practical parts of the next two weeks, the practical part of this. But I just want to invite you once again to join me in living like a disciple for the next three months, love one another. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we um, confess that we are hostile and disputatious when we demand our own way. And yes, that happens in the church. And Father, I, for one, as the leader of this church, I just want to vow to you, Lord, that I do not want to have any of those characteristics in my heart. But only love. I still want to lead and I want to lead well. But, Lord, I want to lead from a place of love, and a place of power under. And I pray, Father, that you would help every person in this room, every person in this room to say, you know what? I'll, I'll give this a shot. I'll try it for three months. I'll try and live like a disciple. I will ask God what it means to think this way, to act this way, to live this way. And before he can even tell me what the answer is, my response to him will be, yes, I will do it. So, Father, I pray you'd bless our people and pray pray that you would bless our lives and our families. And, Lord, I pray that uh, when we start living like disciples, we will change the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.